Well, I want to read one verse in your hearing from Romans uh, chapter 1 and verse 21. Uh, if you'd like to stand uh, and honor the reading of the Word of God, it's only one verse, so it won't take you, uh, it won't take you very long. It'll just be for a second, and then you can be seated again. Amen. This is spiritual aerobics, we call it right here at Eastwind. <laughs> Up and down, get your exercise this morning. But uh, it's a good thing to be able to stand in honor of God's Word if you're able to. Romans chapter 1 and verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. I want to speak this morning on this subject, the protection of praise, the protection of praise. You may be seated, and thank you uh, so much for standing. We know that, that Paul wrote the book of Romans. We know that the Apostle Paul, the missionary Paul, was the author of the book of Romans. Uh, but before uh, he ever visited Rome, he wrote the book of Romans. He wrote it as a letter that would be sent to the church that was in Rome. And he had never been to Rome at that point. But he had heard about the revival and the church at Rome. In fact, he wrote the book of Romans while he was in Corinth during his third missionary journey. And he had heard all of these reports. And of course, Corinth was a, a city that had a lot of trade and it was a, a coastal city and it was a, a place that uh, it had a lot of, of uh, traffic that, that kind of came through there that uh, was seafaring traffic and the way that people moved in those days from one city to the next. And and so while he was there, he kept hearing reports about the revival in Rome. And, uh, and as he began to hear these reports, it just must have sort of just overwhelmed and just sort of risen up inside of his heart and his spirit. Uh, how, you may say, did Rome have uh, such a revival uh, before Paul even visited it, before the main uh, Christian missionary at that time had ever even gone to Rome. How did Rome, who was really the capital of the Roman Empire, and, and the Roman Empire was the most powerful nation at that time, controlled most of the then known world. And Rome, of course, was uh, the political, the economical capital of the military capital of the then known world. And how did they have such uh, revival among the Christians uh, even before Paul had gone there? Well. No doubt it came from eyewitnesses of the power of God that were falling uh, in the upper room. When Acts chapter 2, the Bible talks about uh, how the outpouring of the Spirit of God uh, was noised abroad. And while many people from around the world were gathered in Jerusalem at the Feast of Pentecost, uh, the Bible even mentions very specifically in Acts chapter 2 and verse 7, it says, They were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? It sort of spilled out of the upper room where the 120 were gathered, and it spilled out into the streets where multitudes of people from around different countries uh, begin to hear this and wonder what it was. And they said, How hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? And then it lists Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers in Mesopotamia. They're naming the, the different nationalities that were represented there, and in Judea, and in Cappadocia, and Pontus, and Asia. 
Phrygia and Pamphylia in Egypt and in the parts of Libya around Cyrene. And then it says, and strangers of Rome. There were people that were there on the day of Pentecost from Rome. And the Bible says that they had that day added 3,000 people to the church. That means that there were a number of people even from Rome that received a Pentecostal experience on the day of Pentecost as the Holy Ghost was being poured out. Because the Bible said they were all amazed and they were in doubt. And they said one to another, what meaneth this? What is this all about? They saw that there was this wonderful work that was being done by God. They were, they were hungry. They were excited. They, they were pricked in their heart. They were convicted. And the Holy Ghost was poured out. And the Bible said that day, 3,000 people were added to the church after Peter stood up with the 11 and preached and told them, this is that that was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And they said, well, what must we do? He said, you got to repent of your sins. Be baptized in the name of Jesus. Be filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. And no doubt those strangers from Rome went back to Rome and they began to witness to their friends. You won't believe what happened to us when we were down in Jerusalem. Well, I thought you were going down there for the feast of Pentecost. We did. But while we were there, while we were on vacation, we brought home more than just souvenirs from the Judean region. We brought home an experience that we want to share with you. And so they begin to tell their friends and their friends begin to pray with them and people started getting the Holy Ghost and, and there was a revival that broke out in Rome. In addition to that, we know that at least one Roman centurion uh, received salvation in Acts 10. His name was Cornelius. And not just he, but the Bible says that his family and the household, the servants, everybody, the, these Roman centurions were, were leaders. They had at least 100 men under them, and they would be on rotation. They would go to this region and this Galilee region, and they'd be there for a certain amount of time, and then they would rotate out, and they'd be back to Rome. And, and it must have been that Cornelius brought with him this apostolic message, brought it back to Rome. And, and so uh, it began to be noised abroad in Rome. What was happening in Jerusalem, what was happening in the Judean region. And so there was a church that began to be established in Rome. And uh, this Christian church started springing up and people started getting saved. And it was a revival church to the point that Paul was so excited about this church that he wrote a brilliant letter to them. It's in our Bibles called the Book of Romans. He wrote it to them before he ever met them. He wrote them this, this wonderful letter where he celebrated and laid out in an amazing fashion what salvation is all about. Many historians and theologians believe that one of the main reasons that Paul appealed to Caesar when he was arrested the final time was because he had a desire to get to Rome. Being a Roman citizen, he could appeal to Caesar. And when he appealed to Caesar, all of the judicial process within the Roman uh, judicial system had to stop. They couldn't do anything with him until he was able to appeal to Caesar. They had to put him on a boat and take him to Rome. Oh, I believe he had an ulterior motive. He's like, I'm going to find a way to get to Rome. I want to see the revival for myself. 
And I'm going to tell you what, when he got to Rome, history tells us that even though they had him chained between Roman guards, he began to witness and people would begin to come and the revival begin to spread because God, hallelujah, can use anybody in any situation. So Paul was very intrigued with the gospel being spread to the most powerful city in the then known world. It was the epicenter. Everything flowed through Rome. And so Paul begins this letter. We just read one verse uh, from the book of Romans. But Paul begins this letter by introducing himself and then mentioning that their faith is spoken of throughout all the world. He says that from the very beginning. We, we know that God is doing something powerful in Rome. And your faith is noised abroad. He said, I pray for you always. And by any way possible, if it be the will of God, that he should be able to come unto them. Because he said, I want to impart unto you what God has put in me. If there be any way possible, he found a way possible. He appealed to Caesar. He said, if it be any way possible, if it be the will of God, I want to come to you. He was in Corinth when he wrote these words. But he figured out how to get to Rome by appealing unto Caesar. He makes it clear that he wants to impart his spiritual gift to them to the help to establish, he uses that word, to help establish the church in Rome. He knows he has something to give them. He knows he wants to give them something that will help them, that will benefit them. This is the premise of the book of Romans as it begins. So he begins by establishing the common ground, the common ground that he has with them by mentioning that he is a debtor to both the Greeks and barbarians and that his ministry has been to the Gentiles, but that Rome should not be excluded from that group. There was a competition even back then uh, between the Greeks and the Italians. Uh, they're, they're a lot alike, even though they don't like to admit it. I can say that because I'm half Italian. And I went to Greece when I was just a young person and realized Everybody in, in Greece was similar to the way they are in Italy. And so going all the way back to Athens and Rome, there was always this competition uh, between Athens and Rome. And Paul starts out by saying, I'm a debtor to the Greeks. In other words, I've, I've got a lot that I owe the Greeks and, and the barbarians. He's referring to those groups that had, had come into uh, that region and, and had been a part of that fighting force that had been incorporated into the Greek military. And he talks about how that he's a debtor to the Greeks and the barbarians and that his ministry is to the Gentiles. But he said, I don't want Rome to be excluded. He was, he was sort of making sure that they were interested in what he had to say. Yes, I owe a lot to Greece, but you know what? There's something that I want to give to the inhabitants of Rome also. He establishes in just a few short verses the commonality of the Jews and the Greeks, that we are all needful of the one true living God. He's making sure that they don't exclude themselves by saying, well, uh, we're, we're Romans because, you know, they were, they were cut above everybody else at that time. They were uh, the elite. The Romans were the elite. They were the wealthiest nation. They were the most powerful military nation. They, they were Romans. And so everywhere they went, we're Romans. Had special laws that protected the Romans. And so he acknowledges that there is something similar to everybody that's on earth, that's wearing skin and has got blood flowing through their veins. Doesn't matter if you're from Rome, doesn't matter if you're 
a Jew or a Greek or a barbarian or a Roman. We're all God's creatures. We're all his creation. I feel like just stopping for a moment and putting an exclamation on that point. It doesn't matter what nation you're from. It doesn't matter what language you speak. We're all creatures of God. And everybody has got to be a worshiper of the one true living God. Jehovah God, his name is Jesus. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. He starts out by talking that all living creatures have a mandate to live righteously and that all creation was created to worship. The way that Paul describes it in Romans 1 is that the visible creation of God worships the invisible aspects of God. So what is the visible creation of God? That's you and I. And what's interesting is that everything that's visible, that's a part of God's creation, worships God. It, it affirms and it attests to the existence of God. You can't look into the stars and say there's no God. You can't look at these great big trees that grow up in Northern California, Brother James, and say that there is no God. You can drive a car through the middle of the tree. That's how big they are. And you can't look at all this wonder that we have around us and say there is no God. They all attest because they are visible aspects of an invisible God. And so they all, in their way, give praise to God. Those little birds that fly by and they're chirping, you don't know what they're saying. They're all giving praise to God. They're singing songs. You don't even know what they're singing. But you listen to them, you're like, I wish that bird would be quiet. Don't shush him, because he may be praising God. We don't know all what their language is. We have a, my, my wife and I and our kids, we have a little a golden doodle uh, that's called Bear. And Bear, we, we tried to name him something ferocious so he wouldn't be a lap dog, but we, we failed. Uh, he, my wife has spoiled him. He is a, definitely a lap dog. But he's so affectionate. He's so much fun. And when we're talking to him, he looks right at us and turns his head. And we'll say, now, Bear, we're going to be gone for a couple days, but we'll be back. And Chi-Chi's going to take care of you while we're gone. And he turns his head and looks at us. And his bottom lip does this. It's like he's trying to talk. We're like, bear to you. He goes. There's no sound coming out, but he's like. They're moving their lip. Maybe that means something. I, I think he's trying to talk. What does that mean? But all of creation has their language, as it were. But with man, God not only gives us as that visible creation of God, he not only gives us that existence that attests to the fact that there's a God, and there's a certain element of us as creation that attests to the fact that there's a God, because all you gotta do is look at the human body and all these systems that have to work and function every day. The Bible says we are fearfully and wonderfully made. They can't duplicate. I mean, as smart as man is nowadays and all the advancement of technology, they can't duplicate what's happening in these human bodies because they are fearfully and wonderfully made. And God has got his fingerprint on each and every individual. 
That's why every person is important. Every person has value. They may have made a lot of mistakes and sins beat them up, but everybody's got value. And as long as you're breathing air, there's hope. God can redeem you. God can restore you. Don't give up on anybody. God's not giving up on them yet. So by our very existence, we give praise to God. But there's a certain aspect that we have in our humanity that the other visible creation of God doesn't have. And that is that he has given us understanding. He has given you and I revelation. As much as I love Bear, Bear can't comprehend Jehovah God. But you and I can. We have a mind that can acknowledge that there is a God who is to be worshiped. So he says the invisible things, this is what, this is the case that Paul is laying out in the beginning of Romans, that the, the visible part of God's creation is given revelation of the invisible things so that they are clearly seen. What is he talking about? That God has given mankind the ability to have understanding of an aspect of God's nature that you cannot see with your visible eye. You have revelation. You have understanding. And when he lays this all out, he's bridging the gap between Jew and Gentile by saying that all humanity is under the one true God. And in so doing, he reveals some keys to life. First, he talks about the counterpoints to the goodness of God. He says not only is there the goodness of God, but there's the wrath of God. And they both come from the character of God because God is a righteous God. And he has revealed that righteous nature to his creation. And so you and I, as, as human beings that were created in the image of God, we have understanding, we have revelation. That nature that we understand about the invisible things of God is the fact that his nature is truth. And truth has a nature that involves freedom. And truth has a nature that involves judgment. Sometimes truth can be harsh, but it's what sets us free. That's why you hear people nowadays that say, we've got to speak the truth, but we've got to speak the truth in love. Why is that? Because just truth on its own can sometimes be harsh because truth is objective. Truth is not subjective. Truth is truth all by itself. Somebody says, well, that's your truth. No, no. Truth is truth. Truth don't need you and I to agree with it to be truth. Truth can stand all by itself. This is the way it is. Someone said, well, you can't say that about me. That's defamation of character. Well, here's what you got to understand about defamation of character. The greatest defense to defamation of character is the truth. If someone calls you a thief and you're a thief, they're just stating a fact. That's not defamation of character. Somebody say, well, I don't like that he did that. Yeah, but were you convicted of stealing? Yes. Okay, well, then you can't say anything about it because it's a fact. It's not an opinion, and so it's not defamation of character. It's just the way that it is. You're a thief. And see, we don't like that. We want to say all nice things about it, but truth doesn't care whether you like it or not. Truth just says, this is the way it is. So now we say, well, we got to speak the truth in love. Well, we'll try to do that the best we can, but truth is still going to be truth. 
there's still a God, there's still a heaven. I know nowadays nobody wants to preach, you know, that anybody's going to be lost and go to hell. Well, guess what? It don't matter if everybody stops preaching it all over the whole world. There's still going to be a hell. Why? Because it's in the Word of God. So truth is going to be truth. You may not like it. You may not embrace it. You may not want it to be proclaimed. But truth is truth. The reason that truth is powerful but it's also convicting is because truth is, it, it emulates out of the nature of God because God is truth. Here we are, the Lord our God is one. That's the truth. There's only one God. So Paul talks about the challenges for humanity. He says when they begin to worship the creature, which is that that is visible, rather than the creator, which is invisible, that they lose their covering from a holy God. The Bible says they lose their sense of appreciation. So we were created as the visible creation of God to be worshipers of the one true living God that's invisible. And man's always struggled with that. That's why you go all the way back to the Old Testament and they would worship idols. And when they would worship idols, then the invisible God would back away because you weren't created to worship the visible. You say, well, thank God we ain't got to worry about idols and golden calves anymore. Yeah, you still do because people want to worship sports stars. They want to worship Hollywood stars. Man is still wanting to worship stuff they can see. They're wanting to worship trees and they're wanting to worship spotted owls and they're wanting to worship humpback whales and they're wanting to worship everything that they can see. Oh, my friend, you weren't created to worship the visible. You were created to worship the invisible. So the Bible says, this is what Paul, this is what Paul, now Paul had never even been to Rome. And he's laying all this out at the very beginning of his letter. And so he, and I don't know if he planned it this way or just Holy Ghost came on him as he started writing and he just come out, I don't know. But I'm glad it did because boy, there's all kinds of insight in this first chapter of Romans. He says this, he says that when the creature you and I, the visible. When we begin to worship the visible, creatures worshiping creatures rather than creatures worshiping the creator. He says they will lose their sense of appreciation. When you start worshiping man rather than God, you lose your sense of appreciation of God. There is a protection that comes when a man or woman says, I'm going to wake up every day and give praise to God. I thank you, Lord, for waking me up. Did you ever think about every day that you wake up, it's a form of the resurrection? Every day when you lay your head down to go to sleep at night and you wake up, it is an indication that God is a God of the resurrection. How many days do you live? How many times have you gone to sleep and you woke up and opened up your eyes and life continued? You know what God was saying? I'm the God that wakes you up. I'm the God that one day is going to wake you up out of a grave because I'm the God of resurrection. 
You say, why is that important? Because every day you wake up, you ought to wake up and say, oh no, it's Monday. You ought to wake up and say, no, this is the day that the Lord has. I will rejoice and be glad when I think of the goodness of Jesus. When I think of the goodness of Jesus, I don't have the luxury of feeling sorry for myself. I don't have the luxury of coming to church and sitting like a bump on a log. Because there's too many good things happening. Oh, God's been too good to me. I, I, I give a shout out this morning to my buddy Seth, who watches every single church service from East Wind. He doesn't live here. He lives over in Tampa. But Friday night when we were preaching anniversary service for his parents over there in the Tampa area, Seth said, David Myers, David Myers. He come running put his hands around me, his parents said, if you've only got one person viewing East Wind services, I can promise you it's our son Seth because he's never missed one service. We love you, Seth. I told him I was going to give him a shout out today. Seth is just a little boy with special needs, but you know what? He's watching East Wind. I don't have the luxury to come and say, somebody get, get my parking spot. Somebody got my seat. I'm here to worship God. I'm here to tell Seth, God is good and he's worthy of our praise. Woo, hallelujah. You can be seated. I'm trying to get to my sermon. Mm. Oh, I feel something welling up in me. It's a spring of living water. The Bible says when they change their praise, their worship, they lose their sense of appreciation. And Paul goes on, he said, they become vain in their imaginations. That's your mind. And their heart becomes darkened. When you stop praising the God that you were created to praise, you don't realize this, but there's a protection on you as long as you're praising God. But when you and I stop praising Him, there's a hedge of protection that is lifted. And the understanding that we had that was clear, it now becomes cloudy. Paul says now professing themselves to be wise, they become fools. They get confused now because the protection of praise has been lifted. Because if you worship God, there's a protection. There's a protection on your heart. 
There's a protection on your mind. People say, I don't know how you can worship God when I know the sickness you're going through. Because God's protected us. He's protected our minds. We know that even if this body dies, we're going to spend all of eternity worshiping God. There's a protection on our mind. Somebody said, I don't know how you don't have a bad spirit. I know all the hurt you've been through, the rejection you've been through, the divorce you went through. You know why? Because God's protected our heart. And we know that God is a righteous God. So we're going to keep on praising God through the valley. We're going to keep on praising God through the dark days. There's a protection on our mind and on our spirit when we worship God. That's why I say to East Grid Pentecostal Church, don't ever stop praising God. Don't ever stop worshiping God. There's a protection. Woo! from everything in this world. I don't care if you wear 12 masks. You take vitamin C every day. You refuse to shake hands anymore. And you live in a silo. You still can't protect yourself from everything that's in the invisible world. At some point, you got to just say, I'm going to bless the Lord at all times and believe that he's going to protect me. I may get cancer tomorrow, but I'm going to worship him today. I don't know when my cells may go rogue, but I've got the strength, I've got the understanding, and I've got the ability to bless the Lord. Oh, Jesus. You can be seated. Let me, let me, give me five more minutes. Paul said, here's the only way I know how to explain it to you. For me to show you the protection of praise, I got to show you what happens when you don't praise him. Everything gets turned upside down. God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie and worship and serve the creature more than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. Paul gets on a roll. He begins to list all these self-destructive terms that humanity 
begins to take, it causes people to spin out of control. Sins that we're all aware of. But it's interesting to know what causes the downward spiral. Because if we can know what causes it and what prompts it, then we can reverse the process and stay protected. So it all goes back to the text. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Let me break it down for you. If you've got a revelation or an understanding of God, then there is a mandate or a responsibility for humanity that has understanding of God. There's a responsibility to worship that God. Their knowledge produced praise. And that praise produced protection. But when they stopped worshiping that invisible God and the knowledge that they had of him did not produce praise for the invisible God, the protection was removed. So God has given man understanding and God's given man knowledge, but you gotta understand why he did it. He did it for the purpose of praise. He did it so that you could praise him with understanding. When we praise him, we protect our minds. We limit confusion. Let me give you some natural examples. If you have knowledge of what good music is, then you stand. You give an ovation at the end of the performance because you have understanding and appreciation for some music that is played to perfection. If you know that the guest of honor is taking the stage, then you stand in respect. The man's gotten away from this. That's why when a judge enters the courtroom, you have to have a bailiff now to come out and say, all rise. Honorable Joseph Ramsey of the First Circuit, blah, 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 blah. They didn't used to do that. When the judge came out, everybody just stood up because they had understanding that the man or the woman of honor has entered the courtroom. Now, you don't do that when somebody just comes walking in back here with bib overalls on. They come walking in the courtroom, they sit down. Everybody don't stand up for him or her. I don't know who they are. They look like trouble. But when you got understanding that the judge has entered, you ought not to have to have a bailiff tell you to stand. <laughs> if you got knowledge when you come into his house that the Lord of glory is here, you ought not to have to have a worship leader tell you, let's all stand. I'm just going to stand in honor of a holy God, of a righteous God. I'm in his house. I'm in his courtroom. You can be seated. I didn't mean for you to stand. I was just trying to give an example. I apologize. The admiration is given because of the knowledge. 
the knowledge leads you to appreciation, to admiration, and that leads to praise. So knowledge has a responsibility that goes with it. That responsibility is acted upon correctly. It brings a covering. It brings power. It brings the wonderful works of God. In the first several verses of Exodus 15, Moses and the children of Israel are giving praise to God for the victory through the Red Sea. And the praise falls into three divisions. The first division is that we learn what God is, that he is our strength in the day of battle, that he's our song in victory, and that he is our salvation always. He's the God of our fathers, and he's the God of our own mighty champions. He's the God of his people. Then we discover second from, I'm talking about now Exodus 15, when you read those first few verses, children of Israel go through the Red Sea and they're worshiping God. They had the right song, but they had it on the wrong side. You got to worship God before you get through the Red Sea. But in their praise, we discover that second is what God does to his foes. They are covered up by the engulfing waves of destruction. And then third, we're taught, we're taught what God does for his friends. He, he leads forth the people whom he has redeemed. He guides them in his strength to their home. He who brought them out brings them in and plants them in a place that he has prepared for them. So in verse one, it says, then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord and spake saying, I will sing unto the Lord for he hath triumphed glorious. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will prepare him in habitation. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host. Now he pivots to the second point. Pharaoh's chariots and his host hath he cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank into the bottom as a stone. Then he goes in verse 6 and pivots again. Thy right hand, O God, is become glorious in power. The right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. And in the greatness of thine excellency, thou hast overthrown them that rose up against thee. Thou sendest forth thy wrath which consumed them as stubble, and with the blast of thy nostrils, the water was gathered together, the flood stood upright as a heap, and the depths were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I'll overtake, I'll divide the spoil. My lust shall be satisfied upon them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. But thou didst blow with thy wind. The sea covered them, they sank as lead in the mighty waters. Who is like unto thee, O Lord? Among the gods, who is like thee? Glorious in holiness. Woo! Here's what I like. Fearful in praises. That word fearful means reverent. Doing wonders. When we are holy unto him and we are reverent unto him in our praises, then he does mighty wonders. <laughs> Woo. So when you praise him, you're unleashing the power of God on your life. He does wonders in the midst of praise. He does mighty acts. For who? For those that praise him. Then he goes on. Thou stretcheth out thy right hand, the earth swallowed them. Thou in thy mercy hast led forth the people which thou hast redeemed. Thou hast guided them in thy strength unto thy holy habitation. 
Moses says that in this scriptural context, that in the midst of praise, God confuses the enemy. When the army of Pharaoh came into the Red Sea after the children of Israel, God confused them. They went rushing right down into the, they didn't stop and say, wait a second, this may be an ambush. What happens if the waters start to come? They didn't, just in their confusion, in the lust of their power and their desire to conquer these children of Israel that are on foot, they just go rushing right down into the middle of it. For the horse of Pharaoh went in with his chariots, verse 19, and with his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought again the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went over on dried land in the midst of the sea, and Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a timbrel in her hand. That's a tambourine. And all the women went out after her with timbrel and with dances. And Miriam answered them saying, sing ye to the Lord for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. Because praise not only protects you, it confuses your enemy. Mm. That's why the devil is hoping you will not worship God. So 2 Chronicles 20, verses 22 and 23 says, At the very moment they begin to sing and give praise, the Lord caused the armies of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir to start fighting among themselves. The armies of Moab and Ammon turned against their allies from Mount Seir and killed every one of them. Praise confuses the enemy. So the lack of praise or misplaced praise will confuse the creature. Us. That's why you ought to praise him. While you've got breath, praise him. Because praise protects us when we act upon what we know. This is why David had an understanding of what the ark of God represented. So when they were bringing it into town, he begins to praise God in a radical fashion. And his wife didn't understand that. She had stopped praising God a long time ago. She thought her power, her position, her protection came because of her backslidden father. She was confused because she stopped worshiping the one true God because her dad had become bitter and he had stopped worshiping the one true God. So when her husband said, I don't care what anybody thinks, the ark is coming. The ark represents the presence of God. And he got down to the streets he didn't care about his position. He didn't care about his royalty. He didn't care about the fact he was married to the king's daughter. All he knew is the clarity of his revelation that this ark represents the presence of God. And when I'm in the presence of God, I'm going to worship God. He wasn't concerned about his own image. He was concerned with giving praise to God for the revelation that he had of the anointing of God. The Bible said that he inhabits the praises of his people. That means that praise enthrones him. It positions him for favor in your life. It positions him to be exalted in your life. It positions him to be a protector of your life. That's why Moses continues in Exodus 15 and verse 17. Thou shalt bring them in and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thee to dwell in, in the sanctuary, O Lord. In the sanctuary. You understand what the sanctuary is? It's a protected place. In the sanctuary. 
with thy hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. He said, you brought us into a sanctuary. Everybody else thought they were vulnerable. That's why they went back to worshiping golden calves. Because they had stopped worshiping the invisible God. And they thought their only protection came from the Egyptian army. They wanted to go back to that Egyptian lifestyle. We're tired of eating manna. Instead of just giving praise that God delivers food to you long before DoorDash, God was bringing manna. Bishop, they used to pray before they ate because you weren't sure you were going to have anything to eat. So you prayed before you ate. Now we all sit down to eat and we're like, who's going to pray? Oh, Lord, I thank you for this food. In Jesus' name, amen. Because you're not worried about whether you're going to get something to eat. Not only will you and I not have to worry about whether we're going to get something to eat. We got people that's going to bring it to our door. This is, this is why I got these extra pounds right here. You don't even have to go to Publix. Publix will come to you. When my wife and I are out of town, my kids have become fearful that they're going to starve to death. And they call my wife. They don't call me. Mom, can you door dash us some food? We're starving to death. But nobody's standing on the steps of their house when the DoorDash man drops it off and say, Lord, I thank you for not only giving us something to eat, but sending an angel to deliver it to our doorstep. Nobody does that anymore because God's been so good to us. I said, because God's been so good to us. the children of Israel had manna, low-flying low flying quail that came by. Not only flying low, flying slow. So you could just reach out and say, I'll take that one. Had them something to eat for lunch. No, we want the meat pots. We want to go back to Egypt. We got pots of meat. We want to go back to Egypt. And they forgot the God that had delivered them through the Red Sea. And they started murmuring and complaining. God had prepared this wilderness for them. But look how good God is. When they were worshiping God and Moses was leading them in this song, he said, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. He's still providing. He's still protecting. Because guess what, folks? That praise that they had given him, it kept them in the wilderness. Watch this. A pillar of fire at night to give them light and a pillar of cloud by day to cover them from the heat of the Judean desert. Praise will protect you. It will give you light. It will give you understanding and knowledge. And it will cover you from the heat of sin. 
from the depraved nature of fallen flesh. Because even though the children of Israel got off track many times, the Lord would pull them back. And you and I have this fallen flesh, this flesh that has a nature of lust and pride. But it also has the capacity to praise. So you can use your voice to praise him today. You can use your hands to praise him today. You can use your feet to praise him today. So let everything that hath breath praise ye the Lord. Would you stand to your feet right now? Would you lift your hands and your voice unto him? Let everything that hath breath We lift our voice to you today, Lord. We celebrate your glory. We celebrate your power. We celebrate your excellence. That's it, that's it. Just let it come up out of your innermost being. If you want to come down to the front, you can do that. If you want to stay in your seat, you can do that. But for just a few moments before anybody leaves, I want us to develop an atmosphere, a sanctuary in this house right now that is full of the praises of God's people. If you want to walk around and praise God, you can do that. If you want to come and stand at this altar and praise God, you can do that. But I want us for just a few moments right now, I want you to exercise the right to praise Him. If you have forgotten how to praise Him, just start saying, God, you are great. You are greatly to be praised. There's nobody like you, Lord. You've been so good to me, Lord. You've given me strength. You've given me health. I'm in my right mind. I'm in your house today. You've protected my home. You've protected my children. In the name of Jesus. I'll praise when I'm sure. And I'll praise when I'm doubting. I'll praise when surrounded. I'll praise when I'm numbered.
to Prince Shake off despair as I sing out your name A victory dance, I will dance out in faith I will crush disappointment and break Jesus' name. Keep on praising Him all day. 